in Europe sometimes where I always start by saying, now many of you are German and I know English is not your first language, so as a Scotsman I tend to speak a bit fast. So if you need to slow me down, please do that. I remember, I do that every year, but I remember one year, uh, by day two or day three, I was getting a little bit excited into it, and going faster, faster, faster. And suddenly I noticed all the German students sort of look at one another, and, and then they all held up little 30 mile an hour signs. At the <laughs> so I got the message. <laughs> so 30, if not 25 tonight. Okay, let's read together, shall we? From Hebrews chapter one. You're just starting a major study of the book of Hebrews, which is dead exciting. And uh, I hope you're really going to get a lot out of it. And it's a great privilege to kick it off for you. So let's read the 14 verses of Hebrews chapter 1. Here we go. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. But about the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. And righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed. But you, you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels... Did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels, ministering spirits, sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Wow. And as Kevin has already pointed out very helpfully, there is an awful lot in there. So we're only going to skim the surface of it to some extent tonight. Let me just do some adjustments here. Oh, move this a little bit closer, just so I can tap it without uh, upsetting everybody. This is David Guzik, who's written an interesting commentary on, on uh, Hebrews, which you can read on, online. It's the Enduring Word commentary. He's a leader in Calvary Chapel, and this is him at uh, Creation Fest a couple of years ago. And uh, about Hebrews, he says some interesting things. One of them is this. The structure of the book of Hebrews is different from other New Testament books. It begins like an essay, <laughs> continues as a sermon, and ends like a letter. And that's absolutely right. And in some ways, you are taking on the mystery book of the New Testament in this series that you're going to be doing. As Kevin said already, we don't know who wrote it. We don't know who it was written to either. We just know that it was accepted as part of God's word from a very early stage of the church's life. And you can see why. Um, but it comes out of the blue. 
And when you look at it, it is partly essay, partly letter, partly all sorts of things. And I think it is what it is because it was written at a very important turning point in the church's career to say some things that desperately needed to be said, not just for then, although they were important then, but right down through the ages. Who wrote it? That's a... An interesting question. We just don't know, really. But there have been guesses, as you can imagine, right down through history. And some of those guesses um, have been... Well, the obvious one, I suppose, was the Apostle Paul. I remember, actually, my father speaking about Hebrews uh, in our church in St. Monin's in Fife when I was just eight or nine years old, I suppose. And uh, I remember him saying as he started it... Now, nobody quite knows who wrote Hebrews. And I thought, yes, they do. It says there at the top of it, the epistle of the Apostle Paul to the Hebrews. So I reminded that on the way home. I said, Dad, I've solved a mystery for you. I know who wrote Hebrews. And he just laughed and said, no, 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 son, that's not part of the Bible. And, of course, he's right. That was just a guess that was put in the authorized version in the top line. And for many centuries, it was thought that it probably was Paul. But we don't, we don't know that for sure. And it's likely that it wasn't, in fact, because the style is nothing like Paul's. The Greek is nothing like his. Uh, The thought is not like his either. If this is Paul, this is Paul on a very strange day. (laughs) And so in the first couple of hundred years, you you find all sorts of guesses about who might have written it. But um, most people just are content to say, we don't know. It's just good stuff. So it might have been Paul, but unlikely. Was it Barnabas? Well, Clement of Alexandria, one of the early church fathers, came up with this idea, and Tertullian, the great uh, church father, uh, promulgated that idea. The trouble was, they lived 150 years after Hebrews was first first, uh, written, and so their guess was just the same as anybody else's. Sure, Barnabas, the friend of the Apostle Paul, was somebody who was an encourager, and Hebrews is all about encouragement, and also uh, he he was somebody who was a Levite, so he was concerned about priests and offerings and things, which the book of Hebrew says a lot about, but it's really just an inspired guess. There have been other guesses. Martin Luther, for example, thought it was Apollos. Do you remember that guy who was really, really good at preaching, tremendously versed in the Old Testament, but hadn't quite got the point, and so Priscilla and Aquila sat him down, sorted out a few things, and then he was even better. Well, he clearly was a great teacher in the early church, so it might have been Apollos. We just don't know. Another idea from Adolf von Harnack, a 20th century skeptical scholar, was it was Priscilla and Aquila. And actually, Priscilla wrote most of it. But you can't have a girl writing the Bible. So they kept it anonymous for that reason. That does not seem likely, to be quite honest. But, you you, you know, you pay your money, you take your choice. It seems to me that we just don't know, and perhaps God has deliberately not told us. Because it's impossible for anybody to say, oh, yes, this is just uh, the bias of Peter, or the way that Paul thinks, or anything like that. We don't know who wrote it. It comes out of the blue. And it's some very important things to say to us. We do have some clues about who might have written it, though. And the clues go a bit like this. First of all, it's clearly a writer who knew Timothy. Because you find towards the end of Hebrews, there's a verse that mentions Timothy and says Timothy's out of prison now, and he's going to come. So clearly this is somebody who knows Timothy. He doesn't mention Paul, which suggests to me that this is after the death of Paul. However, I'll tell you more about that in a moment. It's written in an extremely cultured Greek style, better than Paul's, to be quite honest, although he had a good education. It's obviously by somebody who's an able teacher and is able to use language very well. There are all sorts of unforgettable bits, aren't there? Hebrews 11, Hebrews 12, fantastic passages, uh, which are obviously written by a great prose stylist. 
Uh, it's, it's somebody who knew the Old Testament well because he quotes the Old Testament all over the place and uses Old Testament ideas all the way through. And that's maybe one reason that the, the letter was called To the Hebrews because somebody looked at this and thought, it's so Jewish, it must be written to Jews. And so we got that name for it. But actually, we don't know. It may well have been written to Greeks who became Christians because the version of the Bible that he uses is the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was used in the early church, in fact, by the Jews through the first couple of centuries of the Christian church. And that's why sometimes the quotations that you'll find in Hebrews don't look like the quotations in your Old Testament, because the Septuagint was just slightly different. In fact, it was so different that uh, the Christians used it all the time. You see, the prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus coming were just so clear in the Septuagint that they went all round the place saying to people, look, look, Jesus in the Bible is is predicting him. And uh, that was one reason why the Jews started taking their own scriptures very seriously and why about 50 years after Jesus' death, um, a rabbi Akiba started a group of scholars called the Masoretes. And the Masoretes, Masora is the Hebrew word for tradition. The Masoretes were the traditionalists who copied the scriptures so carefully that uh, we've never seen better copyists in anywhere in the history of the world. And one of the reasons we know that the Old Testament is absolutely preserved for us the way it should be is because the Masoretes were so good at it. But they weren't good at it because they were Christians. Quite the opposite. They wanted to get the Septuagint wiped out of, uh, of the picture because it was just speaking so clearly about Jesus. And uh, the Septuagint clearly was the version of the Old Testament that this guy uh, used. So was he Greek? Was he Hebrew? We just do not know. There's no mention of persecution. Now, that's important because there was a lot of persecution around in those days. And there was going to be some more very soon after this was written. The book of Hebrews talks a lot about the temple sacrifices in Jerusalem, for example. Well, in AD 70, the Romans marched into Jerusalem and knocked over the temple. It was the most incredible uh, turnabout in Jewish fortunes there had been for many, many centuries. Suddenly, there was no sacrificial system anymore. There were no high priests. Everything was in tatters. Jerusalem had been virtually destroyed. And one would think that in a book that mentions the Old Testament sacrifices as much as Hebrews, that would be mentioned if it had happened yet. So that probably means we can date Hebrews before the destruction of Jerusalem. And most scholars would say somewhere about 67 to 69 is about right. The Apostle Paul has just been killed, but Jerusalem has not yet been destroyed. So somewhere in that gap probably comes the book of Hebrews. And no mention of destruction of the temple. I've talked about that already. I'm getting too excited already. There you go. So this is, this is a chart which you probably can't see anything of. It's, 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 it's pretty um, crowded of the timeline of the early church. But I just want you to notice two things on it. I've marked them out helpfully with great big arrows. So uh, there we are. If you look at where Hebrews comes, that is it. There's a little space there that says Hebrews. Okay. And so a lot of the, the New Testament has already been written. We probably have three Gospels, at least two of them by now. We've got all of Paul's letters. Well, naturally, if he's dead and uh, uh, lots of other stuff as well. And so many things have happened. What has not yet happened is the destruction of the temple. And there's where that happens in AD 70. So somewhere in that gap comes the letter to the Hebrews written by somebody to some people. And we don't know who they were. So why is it so important? Well, Adolf Safir was an interesting guy. He was a Jew in Budapest in, in the 19th century who one day met a Christian missionary. At least it was his father who met the Christian missionary. And Safir's whole Jewish family became converted. 
And Sapphire showed such a, 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 a great um, aptitude for teaching the Bible that they actually smuggled him out of Hungary to go to training college in Scotland because it was a Scottish missionary, Church of Scotland. Aye, aye. And uh, they wanted him to be a minister and then go back to his own people. Uh, uh, and they had to smuggle him out of Hungary because he was just due for military service and uh, they didn't want him to go in the army and get shot instead. So they smuggled him to Scotland, trained him up, and then tried to send him back. And, uh, of course, they couldn't send him back because if he had gone back, he would have been arrested. Uh, so he had to stay in England. And he became one of the best writers and commentators and preachers of the late 19th century in England. And Sapphire's stuff is still available on the Internet. And one of his seven most important books is a series of lectures on the book of Hebrews. And Sapphire says this. This book's important because many people read the scriptures without considering the perspective of scripture. In other words, you just go to a text and you read it and think, oh, what can I make of this? But they don't think about the, the whole sweep of everything. It appears to them, so to speak, upon a flat surface in which there is no perspective. They do not see the gradual unfolding and development. They do not perceive the historical basis upon which prophecies rest and the varying shades and tints which their peculiar position and distance in reference to the fulfillment gives them. They do not remember that the Lord Jesus Christ had his goings forth from of old, from everlasting. And Sapphire goes on to say, that's what Hebrews is all about. It's about connecting every part of the story, right from the beginnings of creation, right through the story of Israel, right up to Jesus, and showing how everything centers in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. And so, tonight, I want to do three things. First of all, talk about the shape of Hebrews, because you're going to be going through this for some time to come. Second, have a look at what's there in chapter one. And third, just say, what does it say to us now? And end very, very briefly by just hinting at one or two of the things we might get out of Hebrews as you go through it. So the shape of Hebrews. Well, you'll find that it's a very impatient book. (laughs) It's not just a book of theology and Old Testament stuff. It's there with a practical purpose. The writer of Hebrews wants to get all of this stuff across to the people he's writing to because he wants them to keep on going. They're Christians who got becalmed. They're in danger of giving up. Some of them, he hints, are even thinking about slipping back into just being Jews again. Because the Christians are having a bad press. It doesn't seem to be going so well. Jesus hasn't come back yet. They're not sure that it's worthwhile going on. And anyway, they've got Jewish opponents now who read the Old Testament very differently from the way that the Christians do and say, are you sure about that interpretation? And so they're they're losing their confidence. And so the book of Hebrews is saying, come on, keep moving, get on. So time and again, you'll find there's a little bit of doctrine. (laughs) And then the writer will say, so get on with it, do it. Then a little bit more doctrine. So do that bit. And another bit, go. So what are you waiting for? And it just keeps on trying to propel people forward. So the way it works is a little bit like this. Shape of Hebrews, chapter one, understand who Jesus is. He starts straight in with Jesus, as we'll see in a moment. Because Jesus is the son of God. And he's convinced that people need to see quite clearly that Jesus isn't just another supernatural force, another angel, some power from beyond, but he's actually the center of all of the plans of God for the entire universe. So he spends the whole of chapter 1 talking about that. Then in chapter 2, he talks about the fact that Jesus is more than just God. He's also man. He's fully human at the same time. And he talks about the way that those two things fit together. And uh, then he talks about the fact that Jesus is greater than Moses. 
He talks about the fact that Jesus is greater than Joshua, who gave a temporary rest to the people of Israel, but it wasn't forever. And then Jesus is greater than any high priest. And you see how in that first section, from chapter 1 to 5, he's going through the whole story of the Old Testament. Creation, the exodus, Moses leading the people, Joshua bringing him into the promised land, the, the, the temple and the sacrifices and all of that sort of stuff. And he's looking at it and saying, yes, but Jesus is greater than that. Yes, but Jesus is greater than that. Yes, but Jesus is greater than that. And he's just building up Jesus enormously because he's convinced that Jesus is the heart of the whole thing. You lose Jesus, you lose everything. And so not surprisingly, in chapter 6, he says, don't get stuck. (laughs) Keep moving. Whatever you do, keep moving forward because you people are getting becalmed and that should not be happening. Get excited about the fact that Jesus has all of this authority and you're related to him. You have stumbled over the one answer to the problems of the universe. Don't throw it away lightly. Then he goes on into another section where he's talking about what Jesus does better. And he says, we have a better high priest than anything you find in the Old Testament. We have a a new covenant, a new deal with God, a new arrangement that nobody else ever had before. And we've got a perfect sacrifice. The sacrifices in the Old Testament had to be offered again and again and again and again, year after year after year after year. There was a day of atonement because the people blew it year after year. And all of the sacrifices only did you for so long, you'd have to do them all again. Jesus, has, as it says in chapter 1, provided purification for sins and sat down in the presence of God. Sat down because there's nothing more to come. He's done it perfectly. Jesus paid it all. And so he talks about that. And then, not surprisingly, there's another section that says in chapter 10, don't get stuck, keep moving. Then you've only got the final part of the book to come. And that's chapters 11, 12 and 13. Live with faith. That's chapter 11, that great uh, chapter about the heroes of faith. Live with determination. That's chapter 12, which talks about keeping on going. Uh, There's a great cloud of witnesses around you. They're all spurring you onto the finishing line. And there are lots of people that could get you down. When God disciplines you, you don't always understand it. You think, God's deserted me. He's not doing anything. Don't believe that. Keep on going. Live with determination. And then in chapter 13, live with just one aim. And that's a chapter where he talks about all sorts of different things, areas of life, uh, things that we need to make decisions about, our marriages, our, our careers, the way we relate to people, all sorts of stuff. And he says, in everything you do, make it your aim to please God. Ask God to help you to do works that are acceptable and pleasing to him. And that's chapter 13. So if you want to look at the whole thing, it looks like this. First of all, a section saying Jesus is central to everything. Then, the first kick in the pants, don't, don't, don't get stuck, get moving. Then, the we have a new deal section, outlining exactly why Jesus has done all this stuff for us, what it actually means in practical practice. Then, the second kick in the pants, don't get stuck, keep moving. And finally, how you live it all out. So, that's roughly where you're going with all of this stuff. Now, it's about time we had a look at chapter 1, isn't it? Because that's what I'm supposed to be talking about. Okay. So, what's in chapter 1? Well, I think there are two bits to it, as you can see, uh, as, we, as we, we've read through it. First of all, the first four verses are just, ooh, powerful, powerful theology. Loads of stuff about what Jesus is in those first four verses. And then for the rest of the passage, uh, he just unpacks that with quotations from the Old Testament. Seven of them. That's probably significant because seven is a number that uh, often is used in the Bible to mean completeness. Everything. Like, for instance, in in 2 Peter chapter 1, when Peter says, add these things to your faith, and then names seven different qualities. 
He's not saying these are the only things you need if you want to be a Christian. But he's saying these seven things just sum up the totality of what God wants to do in you. And similarly here, it's only seven quotations. They're not the biggest ones, the most strategic ones, or the most important ones in the Old Testament. And uh, all he's suggesting is this seven represents a whole lot more. There's stacks of stuff in the Old Testament, and it all points in the direction of Jesus. There's a, a great book by a man called Mike Pilavacci, who's well known to anybody who's been at Soul Survivor. I can't remember the title of it for the, for, for the life of me, but it's, it's, it's about the way in which the Old Testament reflects Jesus on page after page. And Pilavacci says, you know, when I was growing up, those Where's Wally books were just coming out. You've seen those? where you've got a picture on every page, an incredibly complicated picture, and what you're supposed to do is look through it and, and look for Wally. I must admit, I was tempted to bring a slide tonight, but I actually use a Where's Wally sl- slide in some of my lectures on the authority of Scripture, and the students never listen to anything else for the rest of the lecture. They're all trying to find Wally on the screen behind me. So, so sorry, you can buy your own. But, uh, but the, the, the important thing is, Wally is somewhere on every page, and when you look through the whole thing, you think, he's not here, he's not there. Somebody else, yeah, there he is, down in the corner. And yes, sure enough, there he is. In the same way Hebrews is saying, Jesus is on every single page of that Old Testament. He runs right through the whole thing. And these seven quotations are just the tip of the iceberg. But they sum up the totality of what's going on there. So, what's in chapter 1? Well, it starts by talking about all the prophets. Loads of prophets. Isaiah, he worked in courtly circles, if you remember. He was the advisor to kings. Micah, he was just a herdsman out in the countryside. Lived at exactly the same time as Isaiah. In fact, the two of them copied one another because there's a passage in Isaiah that looks very, very like a passage in Micah and we don't know who copied from whom but clearly they appreciated one another yet they were working in completely different ways different places, different message Isaiah, the courtly man who knows all about world empires and the sweep of world history Micah, the herdsman out in the countryside who's, uh, who's concerned with nature and the seasons and, and, and simple issues of right and wrong very different but still messengers from God you find Jonah as well, the only prophet who was swallowed by a fish. You find Ezekiel and uh, the way in which he was supposed to lie on his side and play with a little fort and bombard it with pellets and things like that. And all kinds of things. God makes his prophets do all sorts of stuff. Walking naked through the land for three years, which is not recommended in painting, is something Isaiah had to do. And, uh, you know, uh, all of that stuff. God spoke in different partial ways through different people in different places, different localities, different methods. And chapter 1 says... It's all summed up in God's ultimate statement. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. God has no more to reveal. God has no more to say. It's all there in Jesus. Well, what uh, does, does he go on to say about Jesus? Well, he says if Jesus is God's son, it, it has implications for the past and implications for the future. And he talks about those two things. Uh, he's appointed him heir of all things. Jesus' authority goes on into the future. And through him, he made the universe. Look back and it's just the same. Jesus' authority there in the universe being made. So Jesus has got a past authority and a future authority. How about the present? Well, that's what he goes on to talk about. He says three things. First of all, the sun is the radiance of God's glory. The outshining, if you like, of God's glory. And he's the exact representation of who God is, of God's being. And the third thing he says is he's sustaining everything through his powerful word. Let's just look at those phrases for a second. The outshining of God's glory. What does that mean? Well, nobody can see the glory of God full on, straight off, just like that. But when you see Jesus, 
you're experiencing God. It's a bit like these things. These are uh, actual um, uh, official eclipse sunglasses. Do you remember when the eclipse passed over America last year and everybody went crazy about it? They all bought these little sunglasses because you can't look directly at the sun. You'll damage your eyes. But if you look through those glasses, you can see what it's like. You can get some kind of feel of the whole thing. And Jesus is the outshining of God's glory. When we encounter Jesus, we experience God. And that's why John says at the start of his gospel, which is still not written when Hebrews is written, we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Just a man walking along a road in Palestine, but something about him that just warmed us with the very presence of God. And it's not just that. He says he's the exact representation of God's being. That is apparently how a digital projector works. I've never taken one apart to have a look. It's a bit expensive to try, but that's how it works. And you know what happens? You put your computer in one end, and the picture that comes up on the screen is an exact representation of what you've got down here. Now, if I had a picture of a digital projector down here, and you were seeing, I don't know, naked ladies all over the screen, I would be in trouble with the elders, and uh, I would not know what was going on, because my, the, your projector would be showing something completely different from what I've got down there. But Jesus is the exact representation of God. And so whatever God is, he is. When you look at Jesus, you're seeing what God is like. So not only do you experience God by encountering Jesus, but when we encounter Jesus, we understand God as well. We see him in a human form. Suddenly he makes a lot more sense to us than ever he did before. And because of that, says, says Hebrews, he can sustain all things by his powerful word. What does that mean? Well, God not only creates the universe, he holds it in being. If God ever stopped sustaining the universe through Jesus, we'd just disappear. That's what it uh, means when it says later on in one of those quotations from the Old Testament, uh, uh, you will roll them up like a robe, like a garment, they will be changed. God can get rid of everything whenever he wants. What does it mean? Donald Mackay, who was a great Christian writer for InterVarsity and, and a, a Quaker Christian here in Britain earlier in the 20th century, brilliant scientist too, once explained it in one of his books, The Clockwork Image, like this. Suppose you come in some evening at 7.30, you switch on ITV, there's Coronation Street. Suddenly you're watching everything that's happening in Weatherfield and uh, you, you uh, get drawn into the story and you see all kinds of things happening in streets very like the ones you know to people, very like the people you know outside. And there's a whole little world that's just been created on the television screen there in front of you. But after ten minutes you come to your senses and you think, this is rubbish. And you switch it off again. What happens? That whole world just disappears into the screen and dies. You were holding it in being. You were sustaining it by keeping the television on. And as soon as you put the off switch on... That whole world just disappeared. Now, it's the same way with us, says Mackay. God not only created the world and set it off, but he's also holding it in being moment by moment. And if God ever decided to roll the universe up like a scroll, that would be it. And he's sustaining it by who? By Jesus. And because Jesus is the outshining of God's glory, because Jesus is the exact representation of everything that God is, he's also the one who's equipped to sustain the universe and hold it in being.
So this is big stuff for the first three, three verses of a letter, isn't it? Then he goes on to talk about what, what Jesus has done. After he had provided purification for sins. Whoa, that is a pretty big part of the story. And he's, he's got through it in just one phrase there. Don't worry, he's going to come back to it big time later on in further chapters. But he talks about how Jesus acted. Jesus provided purification for sins. He actually came down to earth, he lived a human life, and he died on our behalf to be the mediator between us and God. He, Jesus, acted. And then he says, the great thing is, Jesus also stopped acting. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He not only acted in coming down here and doing something that we could never do for ourselves, he also stopped because he'd done it all. It was complete. Any high priest, and he's going to say this in future chapters again and again, will have to keep on offering sacrifices day in, day out, year in, year out. Jesus doesn't have to do that because not only did he act decisively, once for all, he's now stopped and sat down in the position of authority at the right hand of God. That makes him pretty special. And uh, he talks about how that works with the angels. It makes him superior to the angels because of what he did. He became as much superior to the angels, it says in verse 4. How did he become superior to the angels? Because he did what no angel could ever have done and died on the cross. And he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. In other words, he's superior to them in another way as well. He stopped acting because he's now at the right hand of God in power. And the name he inherited, the name of God's own son, the name of the heir of the world's, is so much greater than the name of the, agents, uh, the angels. So he's superior to the angels because of what he did on the cross. He's superior to the angels also because of who he is. The name he's inherited is so much greater than theirs. Well, that's the great passage of theology that you get in Hebrews chapter 1. And then you move into the, the bit where there are the seven quotations. We're going to have to go through this fairly quickly, but you can look at, up, up at these, uh, these up for yourself if you like later on. There are seven quotations, and two of them uh, stand together. The first two, for example, You are my son, today I have become your father. I will be his father, and he will be my son. What do we know about those? Well, those come from the coronation writings of the king of Israel. The first one is from Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 in verse 7, uh, uh, well, Psalm 2 is a, is a psalm that was recited at the coronation as the oil of anointing was poured on the, on the new king's head. And uh, the king was told, today you are God's son. Today you've been anointed and he's become your father. And the Jews from the very earliest days saw that as not just a, a psalm to sing in Westminster Abbey or whatever, but something that had a prophetic fulfillment that nobody had achieved yet. And one day God's real king, God's perfect king was going to arrive and that was going to be about him. There's another passage in 2 Samuel 7. I will be his father and he will be his son. And that's associated with the coronation as well. So what it's saying is God has crowned Jesus king because he is his son. God's got this special relationship with Jesus which puts him way above any angel that ever existed. Then you get the second quotation. Psalm uh, 57 is, is, is uh, sorry, uh, 97 is where that one comes from. Let all God's angels worship him. And uh, that's, that's, that's uh, an interesting one. We, we, we're not sure if it is Psalm 97, actually, because in our version of Psalm 97, it doesn't seem quite to say that. 
It could also be from the book of Deuteronomy. We don't know. The likelihood is, though, that it's from the Psalms because so many of these quotations come from the Psalms here. And he's saying, listen, when Jesus comes into the world, God's direction is clear. He's not just another messenger. He's not just another angel. God is sending his angels in and out of the world all the time doing all sorts of jobs. This is not just another one. This is one who must be worshipped by all of the angels. In speaking, and then you get two quotations which are contrasted with one another. There's the first one from Psalm 104. In speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his servants flames of fire, but about the sun, he says this. And so Psalm 104 tells us all about the angels, but the second one, that tells us about the Son of God. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. No angel ever had that said about him. Righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. And it talks about his moral authority. You've loved righteousness, you've hated wickedness, and so God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing with the oil of joy. And then, is that it? No, there's more. Psalm 102 is the next one. And uh, here he quotes a large, large chunk. In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, the heavens are the work of your hands. And he says, all of this that we applied in the past to God the Father actually applies to Jesus. And do you know that Jewish scribes have looked at this psalm in the past and said, oh, this is about the Messiah. Yep, it's about your Jesus. Get it right. Just take it on board. This is how big Jesus actually is. And there's a final one. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Psalm 110 is probably where he plans to finish because Psalm 110 was the most quoted psalm in the entire New Testament. Do you know that? And so it was one that the Christians used again and again in personal evangelism. You don't believe in my Jesus? Let me show you Psalm 110. It's a bit like turning to John chapter 3 or Romans chapter 10 in our day. And uh, he finishes with that one because it says just what he wants to say to conclude. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It says the angels, they're just ministering spirits. They're big, they're important, they're valuable. You see an angel, you'd be super impressed. But Jesus is much, much more than that. So, basically the way it goes is, the first quotation tells us about Jesus being crowned as king, God's son, well the first two actually, but he's no ordinary king, and so he's worshipped by angels as well, that's something that didn't happen to the kings of Israel. So, why is he so much higher than the angels? Well, that's what the next quotation uh, uh, gives you, the two that are in contrast with one another, he's so different from the angels, his qualities are completely different from theirs. And is there more? Well, yes, there is. Because he then goes on to say, he also says, and adds in a bit more just for for good value. Eternal importance of Jesus. And he does a different job to the angels as a result of that. And so he's finally victorious. And that's the way the whole argument goes. That leaves me just to talk, finally, about this last little bit. What does it say to us now? Well, if you look at the points he's making about Jesus, I think the main point that emerges is simply this. Jesus is supreme. In your Christian life and mine, There is no other force, no other authority, no other voice that we need to listen to as much as Jesus. He's the heart, he's the centre of absolutely everything that's happened to us as Christians. And those quotations, there's five points he makes, uh, make uh, five, five appeals to us. First of all, he's supreme because of his relationship with the Father. You are my son, this day I've begotten you. What that says to us, I think, is we worship him. We put him top. Nothing is more important in our lives than Jesus Christ because that's a position he's got in the universe. The second uh, or third quotation is about his authority over heaven, Um, about the fact that uh, uh, all God's angels worship him. 
And so we accept no other authority in our lives. If Jesus says it, we do it. He is the boss. Third, he's supreme because of his moral character. You've loved righteousness, you've hated iniquity, and so your God has given you, trusted you with power over the universe. And so when we look at Jesus, we get a guide to what we should look like, and we know how to live from him. He's supreme because of his eternal consistency. We can rely on him forever. The heavens will fade and disappear. God will roll up things like a scroll or like a used garment thrown into the laundry bin. Jesus is going to be there throughout. You can trust him in all the circumstances of life, whatever is going on. And finally, he's supreme because of his power to conquer. Ultimately, he's the victorious one. God says to him, sit at my right hand and I'll make your enemies the footstool of your feet. And so what that says to us is we can rest in the fact that we don't have to fight through this weary life by ourselves, but the one who is victorious has got tangled up with our life. And as long as we stick with him, we're going somewhere. That's a very, very fast move through the territory. Let's just pray, shall we, before we go on with the service and think about some of those thoughts which have gone past at the speed of light, but which we need to bear in mind because they're going to be so important in the rest of Hebrews as you go on through. Heavenly Father, If Hebrews 1 tells us nothing else, it shows us that you are incredibly proud of your son Jesus. He's right at the center of your plans for the universe, for history, for creation, but for us as well. And we know that as Christians who try to follow him in a discouraging world, sometimes we end up like the people to whom the book of Hebrews was written not very sure just how far we want to follow him or how enthusiastically. Capture our hearts with the vision you present in Hebrews chapter 1 of a Jesus who is all attractive, who is super powerful, who is infinitely caring, and whose authority reaches from one end of the cosmos to the other and then back around the other side. And help us this week live with dignity and pride And humility too, as people whose lives have been touched by the infinite and are in contact with the ruler of the universe, the Son of God himself. (coughs) Ask it for your name's sake. Amen.